Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Marshall Poe, and I happen to be the editor-in-chief of the network. And today I will be interviewing my friend and colleague on the network, Jim Stein. Jim is the host of New Books in Mathematics, and we'll be talking about his book, L.A. Math. This is a very, I don't know, is it right to say unconventional book, Jim? Oh, absolutely. Okay, good. Uh, All right. <laughs> so so we'll be talking about L.A. math, and uh, Jim has a lot of interesting things to say about it, and I encourage you to go buy it and read it. One of the reviewers of the book said, it's as if Ellery Queen, with the help of uh, P.G. Woodhouse, spiced up a collection of detective tales with a generous handful of practical mathematics. That, that's, that's a lot of praise. The book's been getting good reviews, hasn't it, Jim? Um, it's been getting excellent reviews, which I'm absolutely delighted with, because as you mentioned earlier, it is an unconventional book. And considering that it took me approximately 25 years to get it published, um, I was a bit, <laughs> <laughs> I wrote the book actually back in the 1990s. There's a good story with that. Um, in fact, the story is sort of how the book eventually came to be in the first place. Well, do um, tell it. Okay, I teach a course called uh, Liberal Arts Mathematics. Well, I did teach it. I'm an emeritus professor now, although I have a part-time gig at a local community college. But um, Liberal Arts Mathematics, which is often known as Math for Poets, is a course that is often the required course that uh, non-STEM majors, liberal arts majors, have to take in order to get a certain box checked on their graduation form. And um, mathematicians always want to make sure that mathematics is understood and appreciated by the community as a whole, which in general it is not. And teaching liberal arts mathematics is, uh, it's like pulling teeth sometimes. Sometimes you get some really good students who really get into it, but the vast majority of students haven't liked mathematics, oh, since roughly they were eight years old, and they figure this is their last exposure to it. It's their last trip to the dentist, and they want to get by it. <laughs> um, and, and believe me, I know exactly how they feel because I had the same experience with a bunch of other courses like history. And that's one of the things that originally motivated the, uh, uh, motivated the book. Um, I taught the course a number of times, and I'm a pretty entertaining teacher, and I do a pretty good job of teaching, but I would run into some of my students a year later, and they'd say hello to me because they had fond memories of me, if not mathematics, and I'd say, yeah, and um, how are you doing, and do you remember anything from the course? And in general, the answer was no. They sort of remembered that they'd learned some stuff, but now they'd forgotten it because it wasn't really part of their lives. And of course, if you're a mathematician, you don't want this to happen to mathematics. And I know, Marshall, you're a historian and you don't want that to happen with history but it's even I, I you know you can't say mathematics is more important than history but stem subjects science technology engineering and mathematics depend very heavily on mathematics and you don't want two people to get married who hate mathematics their kid has talent for mathematics and all of a sudden he discovers that mathematics is not appreciated so what i wanted to do was i wanted to see if i could figure out a way to make the course enjoyable and memorable for the students. And I had a number of different uh, uh, things that acted as input, one of which was uh, 
You mentioned earlier that one of the reviewers talked about Ellery Queen and P.G. Woodhouse. I was introduced to both of these by my mother um, because my mother would make weekly trips to the library, come back with an armload of books, which were the types of things that she liked to read. And as a result, I liked to read them also. Ellery Queen wrote mystery stories. He was a great mystery writer. Some of his mysteries were very deep, but they were always very entertaining. And I found out later in life that Ellery Queen was actually too people, Manfred Denet and Frederick Lee, and my mother had dated one of them, which was sort of a surprise. And P.G. Woodhouse um, wrote the Jeeves and Worcester series, which appeared a number of years ago on PBS and was just absolutely charming. And anyway, uh, I'd had this as background, and I'd always loved mystery stories. And one day I was in the library, and I was reading a collection of stories by Agatha Christie entitled The Labors of Hercules. And Hercule Poirot was Agatha Christie's main detective. And the labors of Hercules were a collection of 12 detective stories, which mirrored to some extent the 12 classical labors of Hercules in mythology. And Agatha Christie had a background in architecture and archaeology and things like this, but it was a tour de force. Um, uh, admittedly, the stories, you know, obviously weren't the same because Hercule Poirot existed in 1930s London and Hercules, the mythological character, existed back before, uh, back, uh, you know, thousands of years ago. But nonetheless, the idea was brilliant. And I thought to myself, why don't I do something like that for liberal arts mathematics? And so I thought of the possible ways that I could do it. And I settled on the idea of the two character detect, uh, the two character detectives. I originally tried to write some stories using uh, Jeeves and Worcester is a model, but the stories were very stilted because it's not my environment. I'm I'm not in 1930s Britain. I'm in at when I was writing the stories in 1990s Los Angeles. So I got the idea. I wrote a couple of stories, and there was a publisher who was looking for a uh, <clears throat> looking for a new way to get into liberal arts math textbooks. So I approached them. They liked the idea. They gave me an advance. I started working on the book, and then, as sometimes happens, the publisher got taken over by a larger publisher whose name we won't mention, McGraw Hill, and they. <laughs> And they scratched the project. So I was disappointed because I wanted to see the uh, I wanted to see the book written. But nonetheless, I knew that if McGraw Hill actually followed through with the project, um, it would end up not to be what I wanted. So, you know, so I stored it on my hard drive. And then a number of years later, after I'd started writing um, writing books, my agent asked me if I had anything else available that she might try to sell. So I described this book and she said I couldn't sell that in a million years. (laughs) So it stayed on my hard drive until, thanks to you, indirectly, um, I uh, received a copy of a book to review called How Not to Be Wrong by Jordan Ellenberg. And the book was an absolutely brilliant book. But in reading it, Jordan covered a few of the topics that I had covered in my book. And um, Jordan also had the same type of sense of humor that I did. It was sort of tongue in cheek, gentle, light. I loved it. So anyway, I asked Jordan if uh, uh, I sent him one of the stories in the book. And I said, I have a 
collection of these, and I wonder if you'd give me a, ref- uh, a referral to your editor. And he read the story, and he said, Jim, my editor isn't right for it, but I know just the person. And so he put me in touch with Vicki Kern of Princeton University Press, and he was absolutely right. Um, and that's how the book came to be. That's fantastic. I'm interested to know, since it is a collection of uh, stories, and they're built around, I don't know if I would call them sort of mathematical techniques or problems or so on and so forth. How, how did you choose which uh, parts of math to cover? And I, I imagine most of the people who listen to this podcast will understand that mathematics is a tremendously varied discipline. Yeah, and uh, liberal arts mathematics is also a tremendously varied subject because if you take a course like calculus at any university, first semester calculus is almost identical, covers the identical topics. But liberal arts mathematics is varies from university to university and even varies from instructor to instructor at the same universities because uh, the math department basically says, hey, try and do something. Um, these are difficult. <laughs> it's a difficult group of people to work with. Do your best. And over the years, there, were ba- there have basically been three distinct approaches to liberal arts math. There may be more that I know of, but the ones that I'm familiar with is they didn't learn it the first time, so hit it with them again. Um, that you know, things like algebra, uh, algebra, geometry, basic, uh, basic stuff that. They should have gotten the first time and we'll try and figure out something that makes it relevant to their lives. Good luck to that. Um, but anyway, that's one of the topics. The other is what's usually referred to as finite mathematics, probability and statistics. And these are topics of increasing importance in today's society. And they're also topics that can be understood without too much difficulty by students who haven't much mathematical background. And the third approach, which was championed in uh, the 1980s and 1990s, is, hey, there have been some really intriguing developments in mathematics recently, and some of them can be made accessible to, uh, uh, to students without much mathematical background. There's a book called For All Practical Purposes, which was published by a consortium of mathematicians, and it attempted to do this. And many liberal arts mathematics courses were taught from it over the years with greater or lesser degrees of success. And so what I did was I chose some stories from each one of these three areas. Well, I didn't choose the stories. I chose the topics. And... from each one of these three areas. So if there was a teacher teaching in any one of these three areas, there would at least be something that they could work with. They, you know, they could have the students read the stories and they'd have something they could work with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So is the notion then that this book, in addition to being read by people who like mystery stories, will be used in liberal arts math courses? Um, I'm not sure whether or not the word used is appropriate, although it could be. I mean, if somebody came to me and said, Jim, um, uh, you have carte blanche, go teach the course that you would like to teach using this book, I could do it and I could do it very easily because all you need is a bunch of mathematical topics. And actually, the book itself contains mathematical, um, I guess you would say, elaboration of some of the key points at the end. And also on the website, 
there's a fair amount of mathematical material that was actually written for the liberal arts textbook, but which wasn't published as part of LA math. And it's on the website. And so if anybody wants to construct a course around it, it's not all that difficult. But what I'm really hoping is I'm hoping that what the book can be used is it can be used as a way to show students that mathematics can be mathematics Topics can be taught in such a way that it's memorable. Mm-hmm. And you're a historian, Marshall. So I can tell you I had bad experiences with history courses. To me, it was just an endless, you know, an endless procession of dates, kings, battles. Um, and yes, there is a story in history, but for some reason, the courses didn't see it. And I, for some reason, I focused on the Battle of Agincourt. <laughs> I must have had three or four courses which mentioned the Battle of Agincourt. I studied it several times. I couldn't tell you a thing about it without the aid of Google or Wikipedia or something like that. And that's because it was never made memorable to me. And there are all these topics in mathematics that if you can just think of a way to present it that makes it memorable, um, then maybe the students will remember it and they'll remember some mathematics and think kindly of it. And what I'd like to do now is I'd like to just very briefly talk about the best story in mathematics ever written, which I didn't write. Okay, go ahead. Um, Okay, I don't know whether or not you've ever read The Devil and Simon Flagg by Arthur Porges. I have not. Okay, read it. Um, it's a uh, it's an absolutely charming short story about the appeal of mathematics. Um, and uh, the, the basic idea is this. Um, there's a mathematician <coughs> whose wife is a demonologist or has studied demonology, manages to summon up the devil. And there's this classic wager that you can make with the devil. Give him a question that he can't answer and he will give you whatever you want. So there's a little back and forth by play between the devil and Simon Flagg, who's this mathematical instructor at the small liberal arts college. And then remember that the story was written in, in about 1953 or 54. Um, the mathematics instructor says, is Fermat's last theorem true? At the time, Fermat's last theorem was the great unsolved problem of mathematics. <clears throat> and the story goes on from there. And it is utterly and completely charming. And it was the story that I used to introduce the liberal arts math text that I wrote and that was rejected back in the 1990s. And in order to use it, I corresponded with the author of that story, Arthur Porches. And he It turned out he let me use the story for free, no royalties, and it turned out that he'd been a mathematics instructor. He was a very, very good science fiction and mystery writer. He wrote maybe three or four hundred published short stories, and they were all O. Henry-esque. And I urge all of our listeners to go check out The Devil and Simon Flagg because it's the best story on mathematics ever written. Everybody who reads it just loves it. And I began a uh, correspondence with Arthur that lasted basically 10 years up until his death. Mm. And he taught mathematics at uh, Occidental College and L.A. Community College in Los Angeles before uh, before the writing gig hit. And he moved to Monterey and, well, actually Pacific Grove, which is a sub 
uh, a suburb of Monterey, and just wrote for a living. And he was a wonderful, charming correspondent. He would write these letters on this old typewriter. The ribbon was constantly giving out. And it turns out that he had so much difficulty changing the ribbon. (laughs) (laughs) I would get these things, which were these letters, which were merely indentations in paper. (laughs) And I sort of had to uh, put them under a piece of paper and sort of uh, sort of scan over them, you know, with pencil in order to bring out actually what he'd said. But he was a wonderful correspondent, a delightful guy, and he wrote a number of fabulous stories. Mm-hmm. And um, it's the best story on mathematics that I have ever uh, that I have ever read. And I wanted to start off any course on liberal arts mathematics by saying to students, you want to know why we love mathematics? Read this story. Mm-hmm. And I was hoping Maybe I could do something like this with L.A. Math, with the exception that um, um, you may remember, if you read The Devil and Simon Flagg, it's possible you'll remember what Fermat's last theorem was all about. But what you'll remember is the way mathematicians think about mathematics, why we love it. And what I wanted to do in L.A. Math is I wanted to write a number of stories, each of which had a central mathematical point that if the reader remembered the story, they'd probably remember the mathematical point. And there are a few in there that actually do you some good if you, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because let's face it, one of, you know, one of the things that uh, makes mathematics uh, the subject that we not only love, but we need is that it describes so many situations and answers so many practical questions. Mm-hmm. And, that's what I tried to do with the book. Yeah, it does indeed. I'm going to, uh, before we get to talk about the stories a little bit and some of the other things that go with the book, like the video and things, I want to depart from the script a little bit and ask you to speculate about the following question. This is something my wife is a mathematician, as you probably know, and uh, we, we talk about this sometimes. Where does math phobia come from? Uh, I, think, <laughs> I hope the I hope the head of the Department of Education is listening because this could be the answer right here. Um, I hope that uh, um, uh, I hope that people actually manage uh, to solve this question and find an injection for it. But my feeling is this: it comes from bad experiences with mathematics, like history phobia. I won't exactly say that I have history phobia, but I had. Um, Um, I had a number of uncomfortable experiences in history courses. And one of the intriguing things, and um, any math teacher can tell you that this is the case, and psychologists have done studies about this, is that mathematics is the favorite subject of kids in about first through third grade because it uh, first of all one of the things that one of the things that kids want is they want structure but they want to understand things and mathematics is one of the few things that you can understand you can tell them that the capital of california is sacramento and they'll absorb that but there's no why there it just is um, but mathematics, they can understand, and most kids, for some reason, just like it. But then, um, by the time you get to sixth or seventh grade, um, they basically hate it. And so, uh, the reason, of course, not everybody does. Of course, there are, you know, there are all of us nerds who've loved it ever since we first encountered it. But I think what happens is that we don't do a good job of teaching it. We don't make it attractive. Um, and what happens 
happens in our schools is that a lot of the mathematics that a student encounters in, say, third through seventh grade is taught by generalists. It's taught by, you know, it's taught by third and fifth grade teacher, third through sixth or seventh grade teachers who have to teach all different subjects. And that's so difficult. And so <clears throat> as a result, the people who are teaching it are often people who, wasn't, who are uncomfortable with it originally. And if you're uncomfortable with the subject, you cannot do a really good job of teaching it. I used to, one of my favorite courses to teach when I was in, uh, when I was teaching, I'm retired now, was math for elementary school teachers. Well, first of all, because it had a 30 to 1 girl to guy ratio. <laughs> and at the time I was single, it was just a treat to teach it. But also, what happened, it, what happens is that here you have a chance every time you are, <clears throat> you are talking to a potential teacher, you're addressing a thousand kids down the line that they'll encounter during the course of their teaching careers. And if you can get them to appreciate teacher teaching mathematics, you can make a measurable difference. So what I tried to do was I tried to make it fun for them. And what I did is I showed them how to do magic tricks with mathematics and a whole bunch of other things. And um, I used to do uh, uh, when they had, you know, taken elementary school to Cal State Long Beach Day, I would do mathematical card tricks for third graders. They loved it. You got to do things like this. You've got to make it enjoyable because if it isn't enjoyable, you're going to hate it. Uh, it's like, you know, nobody's ever figured out a way to make a trip to the dentist enjoyable because and unless they knock you out and give you candy afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you do that with mathematics and mathematics can be made enjoyable, it doesn't have to be tedious. And Marshall, you're a teacher yourself. Don't you feel the same way about history? Uh, yeah, I absolutely do. I can tell you that um, I have grown uh to have a great appreciation of mathematics and especially statistics. I was just talking to my wife the other day about going back to college and taking some math classes because I just, uh, you know, I, I feel a kind of great, I'm drawn to it in some way. I mean, I think one of the things that is that uh, I remember um, when I was learning mathematics that I was uh, taught a lot of, uh, uh, I call them recipes, but mathematicians call them algorithms. And I memorized those and I had no idea what I was doing except applying Horrible. them. <laughs> I, just, Horrible. I just applied them. You know? Yes, <laughs> right. And you were a good student, and you got the right answer. Yeah, I can remember. Them on the head, and then I forgot them because I had no but idea. That's what was not going on. what they are, and that, of course, is what happens in uh, often in elementary and middle school. Because there was um, uh, for a long period in my life before I met my wife, I dated a woman who was an algebra teacher in middle school, and here's how she got the job: she had majored in political science when she was in college. And when she got to her school, they said, can anybody here teach algebra? And she raised her hand and she said, I think I can. And she became an algebra teacher. And she mm-hmm. she did a very good job of it. She was, you know, she was bright. And uh, when she had problems, she would, you know, she'd, she'd ask me. But nonetheless, this is how a lot of math gets taught. It's the gym teacher or it's the substitute or something like mm-hmm. that. And it's Whereas if you look at um, if you look at where you see the high performance um, on uh, on uh, international mathematics tests at the, uh, oh, I don't know, uh, eight year old through 14 year old level, it's almost invariably with the uh, with the Far Eastern countries. And 
There are a lot of other sociological reasons. They're, um, uh, they're homogeneous societies. But what happens in those, in those schools is that, first of all, what they do is they don't teach a mile wide and an inch deep. What they do is they teach a few subjects and they go into them in detail, uh, you know, a few topics in mathematics. And also they have mathematics specialists, even in the elementary school. And I think that if you had that, if you had people who were teaching it with a love for it and who really knew how to teach it, you'd see a lot less math phobia. Of course, you'd still see some because math requires you to do something that um, many people are uncomfortable with. It requires you to think. It requires you to reason. It requires you to get the right answer Admittedly, sometimes by rote, as your teachers who did a bad job taught you, but what you should do is you should, there should be some understanding imparted with it. And if there's understanding imparted with it, when you understand something, you invariably appreciate it more. Um, I've taken courses in art appreciation and music appreciation. And for instance, I, I can remember, I never really liked Bach when I was uh, listening to music. It, it struck me as sort of, sort of sterile. Um, and then somebody took, uh, you know, then I had a friend who uh, 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 took box Toccata and Fugue, and he said, the first thing you have to know about box Toccata and Fugue is that it has 64 measures. 64 is a power of two. Mm-hmm. He said, it's divided up in the following, and I thought, my God, this is a brilliant way of structuring a piece of music. And all of a sudden, I acquired a whole lot more appreciation for it, not because he was connecting with me about mathematics and music. Oh, of, of course, that helped. But because I started to understand what was happening better. And I'm sure I'd have a much greater appreciation of history if I understood it. You know, if, if I was taught it not as a turgid succession of dates, battles, and kings, but as the story that I know history must be. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're precisely right. I, I want to uh, correct one thing. Oh, I don't know if it's a correction or not, but by the time I got to high school, I had very good math teachers. Um, these were people with higher degrees, but by that time I'd sort of turned off. Yes, that's not where the problem is. Yeah. The pro- uh, because most of the people who teach high school were mathematics. In fact, all of them were mathematics majors in college. At least that's what they are. Yeah, they were good. Um, they were very good. Yeah, but the, it's, the problem comes at the elementary and middle school level because, you know, you, uh, 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 when you, you know, if you had, you, uh, when your fifth grade child comes home from school, he or she says, my fifth grade teacher. Mm-hmm. The fifth grade teacher is teaching all the subjects. Mm-hmm. As far as I'm concerned, this must be the most high-pressure job in the world. I, I agree completely. It's an incredible job. I can't believe that one person could ever do it. Not impossible. <laughs> and not only that, I served on a couple of textbook adoption committees for the state of California. And I saw the textbooks that they are getting for, uh, for uh, high school mathematics. And I'm thinking to myself, Good God, am I lucky that I'm not a high school mm-hmm. mathematics teacher because this is the most programmed, sterile way to teach a course that I could possibly imagine. And while we're at it, get rid of standardized teaching, uh, standardized testing, too. That's just a horrible idea. 
Um, the uh, the school system it's not messed up because it's uh, it does a great job of teaching the three R's. Although it doesn't give the appreciation for the three R's that we would like. We you know but. Uh, and our colleges are the envy of all, uh, you know, of the educational systems in the world. So I've, I, uh, I said in a recent blog that I wrote for Princeton, if you look at the colleges, our uh, students from all over the world come to our colleges. And the only time our students go elsewhere is basically on exchange programs. Mm-hmm. But um, where we where we have shortchanged our students is at, you know, is roughly from sixth grade through high school. And. Something has to be done um, because we're, you know, we're wasting too many assets and we could do a better job of it. And it doesn't require throwing money at it. It requires just a refocusing and getting more dedicated teachers into the profession and having those dedicated teachers aimed at students. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I agree. I agree completely. Uh, Let me ask one follow up question. And that is so. um, is there any bit of math that the public should know about that it doesn't know about? Is there like uh, one problem or two problems or three problems like the, the public should be aware of this? Uh, I think that the two areas that I would tell uh, the public to focus on is get a better grasp of percentages because I have seen more <laughs> catastrophic errors made with percentages. Yeah. Um, um, people don't understand how percentages work. And – um, shameless plug coming here. Chapter two of the book, uh, chapter two of L.A. Math called The Case of the Vanishing Greenbacks deals with a particular conundrum involving percentages, which arises time and again. That's one. And the other is statistics, because one of the things that you can do is you can bludgeon people with statistics. Um, long ago and far away, I tried to write a science fiction story, um, and b- this was before I had any uh, any concept of how to be a writer. But I did have the following idea for a science fiction story. Um, there's a concept that I would call statistical inundation, in which if you if you um, bathe people or immerse people in statistics, they sort of become believe, they sort of become polarized in that direction. Um, and for instance, I concluded this short story by saying, um, I'm sure you all believe this, or at least 83% of you will. <laughs> and, and that goes on in our society a lot. And I think that it's important, um, even though I must admit, I don't enjoy teaching statistics courses because there's too much in the way of algorithm and computation focusing and not enough on the ideas of statistics, which are extremely important. But I think the public should be more aware of what statistics is. And remember, of course, what uh, Disraeli said. He said, there are three types of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. And um, I think that, and another shameless plug, Chapter 11, The Great Basketball Fix, um, deals with statistics, um, and hopefully in a way that can make it a little easier. But statistics has done one tremendous thing for the world as a whole. It's something called hypothesis testing. And hypothesis testing is how we get drugs to market and how we get politicians to market and how we get breakfast cereals to market. And it's 
important that I think that people understand how hypothesis testing works because it's an integral part of the way our society functions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, uh, I agree with you completely, of course. I tell my students that they should take a probability and statistics class before they leave college, and it will be the most useful thing they ever take. Um, and I think that's probably true. One other thing is that I've noticed that my son really likes to play video games, and I used to like to play games when I was a kid, too. But And this relates to learning mathematics, or, or particularly learning statistics and probability, is that when I used to play games, they were basically uh, on um, paper boards that had little chits and things like this. And we had to figure all of the percentages ourselves. Uh, that is to say, we would have to get pencil and paper and dice to figure out what the result was going to be. And now the computer does it for my son. Yeah, you see what I'm saying? Like, I learned it very early on. I mean, I knew it early on. I knew how to do these things <laughs> because I had to figure exactly what the expected result was and what the result was and so on and so forth. And I, did, I knew that when I was 10 <laughs> by playing Stratomatic Baseball. <laughs> yeah. You know, dude, it, it's really intriguing because one of the things that has happened that is both good and bad, and I was originally on the wrong side of this one, um, is the introduction and um, – the introduction and the saturation of calculators in our society, because what has happened is that we've lost sight of how to do arithmetic. And incidentally, <clears throat> um, there's a wonderful science fiction story by Isaac Asimov, who was a tremendously prescient. Sci- is that the way to pronounce it? I guess. Oh, okay. Well, I did. <laughs> okay, it's either that or prescient, which somehow feels wrong. Uh, you um, tell me. I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> ben Johnson okay. said. Well, never mind. Go ahead. What if, well, he was. You know, um, anyway, I'll go with. Uh, I'll go with prescient. Okay. Uh, Isaac Asimov wrote a science fiction story called "That Feeling of Power." He wrote it in about 1952, and he envisioned a society which had become so dependent upon calculators that people didn't understand how arithmetic worked. And he wrote it in 1952, and 40 years later, it was an absolute reality. And I remember I had one student in one of my classes. Um, this is when I was teaching, you know, I was teaching a uh, basic algebra class because we were sort of required to do it. And uh, I had a question on percentages, and I asked the student who's in my office to take 10% of a number. And she reaches for a calculator. And I said, you can do this without a calculator. And she became flustered and couldn't. Um, 10% move the decimal point over one position. Uh, um, How hard is that? And uh, one of the things that I originally thought and the purveyors of calculators as the answer to everything will tell you is that what we'll do is we'll get rid of the we'll get rid of the of the drudgery of calculation and students will see the patterns and we'll expose them to the beauties of it. And all they do is it prevents them from learning arithmetic. Not knowing arithmetic prevents you from succeeding at algebra. And if you're not going to succeed at algebra, you can't go into any one of the STEM subjects because algebra is the language of mathematics. Mm -hmm. And you absolutely need to understand mathematics. And where did I? I learned uh, I learned all my calculations 
from baseball. When somebody said to me, you know, what's the fractional equivalent of two sevenths? I knew immediately it was 286 because when you, you know, (laughs) if you had batted 14, you know, if you batted 14 for 49, that was two sevenths and you were batting 286. And we would figure these things out in our head. And I'm not a... uh, uh, um, my students think I'm a calculating prodigy because I can multiply two two-digit numbers in my head. Um, good grief. Uh, my son is, can do that. Yeah, I can <laughs> actually, I can actually, uh, I can actually do two three-digit numbers yeah, in my head. That. It takes me ten minutes or thereabouts. That's, and I have to that's not very that. useful, really. <laughs> no, it's really, but, but at least it shows me that my brain is still functioning. Um, it's the same reason that I do jumble in the, in the, uh, in the morning paper, yeah. just so that I can see that my brain is still functioning. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, baseball, it's funny because it, it does teach you a lot of statistics. These things do teach you a lot of statistics. And like I say, when I was growing up, we played these board games that involved lots and lots of probability. That's the only way you could win them is if you knew probability. And uh, and so I just kind of learned it. And I, I didn't really know the, the rules. But, I mean, it was nice to it was nice to be trained in that way. But I do think my son learns a lot from these video games. I, I don't, and I think, and yeah. I'll tell you, it's, games are a great way to introduce mathematics. And as a matter of fact, um, uh, one of the major characters in my book is a confirmed sports junkie and sports better. And this gives me an opportunity to introduce some of the topics through the, uh, through the medium of sports and games because mathematics is integrally involved with sports and games and it's a very good way to introduce it and that's part of the difficulty with why people are math phobic is because what happens is you have them introducing mathematics through stylized problems that might have gone well in the 18th century or maybe even the 19th but are sort of dead and buried now admittedly what's happened is we've updated them to some extent um but Get it through me. What you want to do is you want to get students to understand mathematics through things that they like and are interested in rather than trying to hammer square pegs into round holes. Find what the you know, find what they're interested in. Mathematics is such a universal language that if you're interested in quilting, I barely know what quilting is, but I'm willing to bet. bet That there's uh, and and sometime in the future this is going to happen. I mean, it's not going to happen probably within my lifetime. But what will happen is that you is that you will discover what an individual's interests are, and there will be personally tailored mathematics instruction to get you to understand and appreciate mathematics through what you like. Yeah, I know that I've had pretty good success. I like to play gin rummy and I've taught my kids how to play gin rummy and you can't really win gin rummy unless you uh, know a little probability. And uh, I do these things and they're like, how did you know that? I'm like, because it's magic. I know magic. No, I'll teach you how to do it. Okay. And then, you know, they learn how to card, card count and things like that. So, you know, there are ways to do it. And they think it's fun. We play for money and, you know, I I have to give up 60 cents occasionally, but that's okay. And good for you. And good for you. You you should be doing all these things. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy playing with them. I really do. Because they they do have this kind of wondrous look in their eye when, you know, I can say, oh, well, I know what the next card is. Yeah. (laughs) You know, uh, that's the 
type of magic trick that I did with the third graders who came to Cal State Long Beach, and they loved it. Yeah. And also, I knew one sleight of hand maneuver. What I can do is I can make the card the card that they select appear reversed in the deck of cards when they spread it out. It just absolutely blew yeah. them away. It yeah. was so much fun. Yeah, that I cannot do. You have to teach me that sometimes. Well, let's talk a little bit about the book. There are two main characters in the book, right? So can you talk a little bit about them? Sure. Um, one of the main characters and the narrator of the book is a guy named Freddie Carmichael. And I got my idea. There, there have been two classic detective series that I've read in which the, one of the characters is the narrator. Of course, everybody knows about uh, Holmes and Watson. Dr. Watson writes the books. Um, and the other is Nero Wolfe and Archie Goodwin. And um, I like Nero Wolfe and Archie Goodwin because Archie Goodwin is sort of a bright, savvy guy. Nero Wolfe is the detective who's always pulling stuff, uh, who's who's doing the really deep detective stuff. But Archie Goodwin, uh, Archie Goodwin is not the passive foil that Watson is. And uh, that's Freddie Carmichael. Freddie is recently separated from his wife. He was a New Yorker and he comes to Los Angeles to get away from New York because Los Angeles is about as far away from New York in both space and culture as you can get and still remain in the same country. Well, you could go to Hawaii, I guess. But uh, anyway, he comes to Los Angeles, which is where I am, and he rents a guest house which is owned by Pete Lennox. And Pete is a sports junkie, sports better. But Pete also happens to know a lot of mathematics, which turns out to be useful. And these are the two characters. And Freddie is at first a... Uh, First, a renter of Pete's guest house, and gradually, as they get closer and closer together, they form a partnership and investigate cases as a partnership. And so the partnership grows and involves through, uh, through the end of the book. Mm-hmm. So tell us about some of their uh, your favorite adventures with them or some of the stories in the book. Do you have a couple of favorites? Okay, well, I have, I have one particular favorite because it's based on real life. As uh, um, I had a very good friend, Don Krause, who was a wonderful bridge player, probably the best rock hunter I ever know, and has now passed on to, uh, uh, passed on to uh, uh, another, you know, hopefully – what for him may be another plane, but he died a few months ago. Mm. He's a wonderful guy. Um, and Don was a bright and charming guy. He graduated from Stanford with a degree in either economics or something like that, became a stockbroker in Beverly Hills, and somehow got into the Hollywood movie crowd. And he was in a poker game with a number of Hollywood celebrities. Um if I, uh, Marshall, you may know something about this. One of the Hollywood celebrities who's indirectly in this story is a very famous movie star now passed on. Can I tell a story about him? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Okay, uh, I'm not sure whether or not this is slander, but it was Walter Matthau. <laughs> uh, so well, he's dead, so <laughs> yeah, you're okay. <laughs> he's dead, okay. Well, anyway, Walter Matthau was investigated by uh, uh, by the racketeering committee in the 1950s because the racketeering committee was down on gambling, which had mafia connections, and so Walter Matthau was a huge sports gambler. And uh, he played in the poker game with Don, and because Walter felt rightly or wrongly that the FBI was keeping tabs of his gambling moves, he got Don to place his bets with it, uh, his bets with a bookie for him. 
And so one day, Don, one day Walter calls up Don and says, Don, I've decided that I'm going to change my life. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go and tend to Gamblers Anonymous meeting. Mm -hmm. And uh, Don said, well, Walter, I hope it works for you. I know that this has been a monkey that you've had on your back for a long, long time. (laughs) Best of luck. And so a few hours go by, six o'clock in the evening. The phone rings at Don's house. Don picks it up. And Don said, and he listens, and uh, the voice says, Don, it's Walter. Um, if you can get the Lakers at four or better, bet thousand <laughs> for me. <laughs> and Don says, oh Walter, I thought, you were, <laughs> I thought you were going to a Gambler's Anonymous meeting. And Walter says, I am, but just in case it doesn't take. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> and I have that as a central point in one yeah. of the stories, because right. I thought it was such a great story. Yeah, the monkey was off his back, but the circus was still in town. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And one of the things that um, I always wondered about fiction books, and it doesn't appear in my book. At most fiction books, there's a disclaimer at the start which says that the characters bear no relation whatsoever to any person living or dead. And that's another indication of how lawyers are polluting the society. Because every character, I'm certain, has a relationship between... Uh, to people living and de- living or dead. Every one of the characters in my books are basically an amalgam of people that I've known. For instance, Pete, who's a sports junkie, knows a lot of math. He's part Don. He's part several other friends of mine. Um, and uh, uh, so's Freddie. Freddie has a little bit of me in him. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, and and that's always the case. And Freddie is separated from his wife Lisa, for whom he still carries a torch, and he tries to get a few things going, but he's still got Lisa on his mind. And I felt that way too at various times, or at least I did at the time that I was writing the book, which was in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. So. Uh- Several of the stories uh, involve or revolve around sports betting. I was going to ask whether you bet on sports, but I'm not going to ask that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not going to – whoever's listening, I did not ask that. So uh, should we legalize sports betting? I mean, is that something that – I absolutely think so. I mean, I'm uh, I'm basically a libertarian, and I look at it this way. There are a lot of things which are legal, which you can damage yourself irreparably with. You can drink yourself into a coma. You can smoke yourself into lung cancer. But the question is, um, uh, the question is whether or not, um, whether or not you're going to do any good for uh, society as a whole by preventing something. And we tried the great experiment with prohibition and it turned out to be an abysmal failure. And, My feeling is that with basically something like sports betting, completely legalize it, tax it to some extent. And while we're on the subject, do exactly the same thing with drugs. Um, Mm. Drugs are even more important than legalizing sports betting, because if you legalize drugs or at least decriminalize it, tax it, you've turned a liability. You've automatically defanged the Mexican cartels. I'm sure they're going to come after me after this interview. Um, uh, But anyway, you want to decriminalize it. You want the government to collect money from it, just like they do with alcohol and tobacco. And um, certainly you want to make sure that it doesn't get in the hands of children. We do that with alcohol and tobacco. But um, many people, you know, many people take recreational drugs. It's been a part of our, you know, it's been it's been a part of culture for thousands of years. Um, Why not take advantage of it? You know, one of the things I'm, I'm basically a big fan of turning losing situations into winning situations. And 
sports gambling isn't so much of a losing situation because most people who do it do it on a sort of recreational basis. Yes, there are the people who lose their shirt at it, who get addicted to it. But there are people, you know, there are people who get addicted to sugar. I'm sure there are, there's a lot more danger to our society from overindulging in cheeseburgers than there are than there is in overindulging in sports. Mm-hmm. I lived in the uh, I lived in Ireland for a while, and there, sports betting is a very well integrated part of Irish life, and and English too. You know, yeah. it's, it's a standard part. Do yeah. it that way; it's perfectly fine. Yeah, it's not thought to be dangerous, really, and it's on every corner, and uh, it's easy to do. And your grandma probably does it. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know anything about the issue. I just wondered, uh, you know, kind of what you thought about. About that. Let me ask another question about the, sure. I guess I call it the style of the book. You know, I can remember my own life when, um, I guess it was after Lenny Bruce, but I like to, I like to say that it's probably after Eddie Murphy that pretty much all comics began to do what they call work blue, if you know what I mean. Yeah. 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 Well, this has happened to literature. <laughs> all yeah. of literature now is full of what we used to call blue. Your book isn't. <laughs> why, why is that? And how do you know you're bucking a trend? Okay. Or? Two reasons. Number one is that um, uh, this is going to make me, you know, this is going to make me sound like the world's biggest fuddy duddy. But A, I don't swear. Um, I always figure that swearing is the sign of a depleted vocabulary. And I like to think of myself as an educated person. It's sort of like saying you know all the time. Um, yeah. It's space filler. I've never seen that. Uh, I've never seen that um, swearing advances the plot any. May- maybe it makes the characters a little more graphic or possibly a little more realistic, but it doesn't make the book any better that I've ever seen. So um, I can't do it. I mean, certainly, uh, you know, I-, I don't walk around saying, gosh, darn it, or <laughs> things like that. But I basically don't swear. That's number one. And number two is. I have tried to write sex scenes. They are horrible. <laughs> I can do romance. I can do romance and passion and light romantic comedy pretty well. And I love it because that's what that's what Jeeves and Wooster were. Um, uh, that's what you know. That's what the great you know to me great romantic comedy. Um, there was a wonderful movie a couple of years ago. I don't know whether or not you saw it. Magic in the Moonlight. Woody Allen. Mm, I don't know. I don't think I did. Okay, charming. Um, and um, I recommended it to another a, a number of people, and they walked it out saying, "Charming." That's the way movies should be. And I think that there's a place for uh, you know everything goes in circles. And um, I think that uh, I think that uh, after a while. Um, people, you know, people will come back to realize that, hey, um, there was a time when blue, what made blue interesting was that it was a change of the paradigm. That was one of the things. And people felt, okay, it was earthier, et cetera. But now, since everybody does it, I hear six-year-olds using words that I've never used in my entire life, at least not in public. I do know the meaning of them. I just don't use them. Um, and, uh, I, I feel that there's a place for, there's a place for this in literature. And if I have to be, uh, if I have to be leading the parade of the only person writing like that, well, I'm happy to do so. Mm-hmm. I confess that I will on occasion when I'm angry, um, cuss, but I tell my kids, 
I do not think that, I do not think worse of you for that. Yes, okay, thank you. But I do tell my kids that, especially with reference to the word that begins with F, I say that's what people say when they don't know what to say. <laughs> that's, that's basically all swearing, except for um, you know, I I will say whiskey tango foxtrot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. But I see it as whiskey tango foxtrot whiskey tango or foxtrot. WTF. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. Um, the uh, relationship between these two characters is there's what they call, I, I learned these terms of art, I don't particularly like them, a narrative arc in the book that the characters develop. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, because when they first come together, they're two separate individuals, and basically Freddie's renting Pete's guest house. But gradually, Freddie discovers that Pete has a knack for, as he says, working on problems that seem to occur in Los Angeles but never seem to crop up in New York. Um that's number one. So, of course, they're drawn together by the fact that Freddie has a problem. He talks about it with Pete. Pete knows what it is and figures it out and then goes back to watching baseball or football or whatever. And they like each other. Um, they're, you know, they're, uh, I guess the term nowadays. In fact, one of the reviewers says it's a good bromance. That's a word that I never heard yeah, before, romance, right. but I worked, <laughs> but I worked it out. They gradually, they gradually evolve together. They, uh, there's a moment, uh, there's one moment where, uh, 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 their romantic lives such as they are intertwine. Um, and, uh, I, I think that's a nice feeling because the same thing happened with Archie Goodwin. He originally started working with Nero Wolf just as a hired gun and he gradually did such a good job of it that Nero hired him as his full-time assistant. Then Archie moved into Nero Wolf's house on West 35th Street and thus the narrative saga began. Mm-hmm. So just to get an idea about these characters, I don't know if this is the right way to do it. Uh, when you sell the movie rights, if you, haven't already, and you get to pick who plays whom. Who does play whom? Um, okay, well, I was asked that question. I was asked that question for another blog, and um, uh, and so because I don't watch that much in the way of contemporary uh, TV or contemporary. You can pick people who are dead. I don't oh, think they'll be very lively. But one of them get- is um, the guy who would play Freddie is a guy by the name of Jim Hutton, who starred in the oh, Ellery yeah. Queen mystery series, uh-huh. and he's just sort of an earnest white bread guy. Um, you know, nice looking, but nothing special. Um, and that's the idea that I have for Freddie. The guy that I have for in mind for Pete is Jack Klugman played the sports writer Oscar Madison on oh, the yeah. TV show The Odd Couple. He's oh, sort yeah. of a little bit like Walter Matthau, same yeah. type of thing. But if you regressed him to his late 20s or early 30s, he'd be the right person for Pete Lennox. Yeah. And there's um, and Freddie's, uh, uh, Freddie's wife, from whom he's separated, Lisa, perfect. That's one who would be contemporary. Lisa Kudrow, who played Phoebe, yeah. who was sort of quirky. On, yeah. Same type of character. Yeah, those great choices. Um well, we're almost out of time, but I want to ask one question. And the context of this question is that I'm really hoping that a lot of people who uh, really don't know a lot about mathematics will listen to this interview. So and, do I. And, yeah, and so the question is this. Uh, I understand what mathematics is, um, but I don't particularly, let's say, I don't particularly understand what mathematical research is. How do you do it? What do you do while you do mathematical research? 
Well, basically, when you do mathematical research, that's pretty much all you do, because it's not that and you have to focus intensely on it. But what mathematics, uh, but problems have evolved over the years. Um, and mathematics is a very sophisticated language, which describes a whole bunch of phenomena, some of which are abstract, and not clearly connected with anything, but some of which are extremely important. And I'd like to tell one example of something that was felt to be extremely abstract that is in everybody's lives. Um, There was a mathematician named G.H. Hardy who lived in the first half of the 20th century. He was British. And he wrote a book called A Mathematician's Apology. And in A Mathematician's Apology, he basically said, well... I'm like a painter. A painter paints in oils. I paint in patterns which are much more permanent and much more, uh, much more descriptive. But I feel, even though I feel that what I've done has no practical consequences whatsoever, I feel that I should be accorded the same respect as a painter who has tried to paint in, uh, tried to paint abstractions for all of his life because he felt they were beautiful. And I felt that even though what I'm doing is totally abstract and will have no practical value, they're beautiful. They're what appeal to me. And I've been able to convey some of their beauty to others. Mm. What he did is he worked in the problems involved in factoring numbers. Factoring is something that you go through when you're in uh, elementary school. You learn that every number has prime factors. Prime factors are numbers like two, three, five, and seven, which are only divisible by themselves in one. And something called the fundamental theorem of arithmetic is that every number is the product of prime factors. And this is the type of thing that Hardy looked at, although he looked at very sophisticated problems. Well, it turned out that the techniques that he were looking at showed that particular types of numbers, which were the product of two very large primes, were very, very difficult to factor. And we're very lucky that they are, because every single computer password that you use to open your ATM is the result of the difficulty of factoring to uh, a number which has only two factors, and they're both large primes, and it's an integral part of our society today. And the mathematical research that Hardy did, which looked like it was going absolutely nowhere except to create a few beautiful patterns for few people who are interested in these things is now an integral part of our lives. Indeed it is. Actually, I, I, was, I, uh, I teach a class in which this came up. I think they're called unidirectional functions or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. So that's, uh, um, that's essentially, uh, that's essentially the scrambling process of creating the, uh, of creating the number from the, yeah. uh, you know, of creating the password. Yeah. 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 Well, I just, uh, you know, if you want to, uh, if you want the proof of the pudding is in the eating and I, 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 anybody in the audience should get a really big number and try to factor it. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> it's really hard. It takes a really long time. And you know yeah. what? It takes computers a long time too. Yeah. What happens? <laughs> They got, when they were testing the passwords, what they did was they put it out for public, uh, public decryption. In other words, what they did was they linked a bunch of computers together and it took them nine months. Exactly. Yeah. So, but, that's right. a, but, that's a, but when the RSA algorithm was de- first developed, they took a number that was so large that they felt it would take 400 quadrillion years to decrypt it. <laughs> And I don't have time for that. Months. Yeah, I don't have time for that. Well, Jim, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. It's been really terrific talking to you today. 
Marshall, it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Thanks. Well, let me tell everybody that we've been talking with Jim Stein about his terrific book, L.A. Math. I encourage everybody to go out and uh, buy it. You can find it on Amazon and every place else, and you will learn a lot about mathematics, and you'll probably have a good time reading some mystery stories. So uh, just to sign off, I'm Marshall Poe, the editor-in-chief of the New Books Network. Thank you all very much for listening. 